here we are tonight, humans and pumpkins. <laughs> I spent a lot of time yesterday trying to figure out how they did that one. <laughs> the season changed today. How do you feel about that? The cooler weather moved in. Windy. It's like uh, late fall is sweeping in from the west. <laughs> Was there any suffering for you in the change? And whether or perhaps any clinging to the return of the sunshine or suffering at the loss of the warm temperatures? Or are you enjoying things as they are now? The clarity of the light, the openness of the woods, the energizing coolness of the wind, I was walking up this morning. Now that I don't have a cold, I can walk up in the morning from our, where we stay. I was walking through the woods, and um, the, the leaves were flying with abandon, and um, the pileated woodpecker was flying through the woods, making his call, her call, their call. <laughs> I'm also enjoying a non-cold Thich Han talks about the pleasure of a non-toothache. He's, he says we, we miss it a lot, you know. <laughs> When's the last time you enjoyed a non-toothache? <laughs> I'm very purposely enjoying a non-cold. There are a lot of delights in this world that open up to us when we Pay attention when we actually land here in this world. Tonight we're going to talk about um, the second kind of dukkha, the dukkha of change, anicca dukkha or viparinama dukkha. Last week we began our exploration of dukkha, talking about dukkha dukkha. I really love that just saying dukkha dukkha. It's... Kind of, you know, like double gets it. <laughs> the dukkha associated with um, basic pain and suffering with the of a human life, unpleasant sense experiences, unpleasant mind states. And we talked about um, our inclination without mindfulness to cause ourselves more suffering through the conditioned response of aversion and reactivity to unpleasantness. Andrea went into that quite a bit more last night, into the real details of, of Vedana and how that, that, the conditioning unfolds. And we also started to explore how mindfulness can put a break or, or um, break the chains of these conditioned responses and allow an option that's freer, non-clinging, non-grasping, non-aversion, spaciousness. So we kind of started to mess a little bit with our 
understanding of happiness by exploring the possibility of greater freedom and less suffering by turning towards what's unpleasant. Cultivating the ability to hold unpleasantness in the heart and the mind. To allow it to be with space around it. This talent is of great usefulness in the kind of universe that we've taken birth in, in this universe of continual change, this universe where we'll experience unpleasantness whether we want to or not. So last night um, I had a dream that I think is related to this. And uh, the teacher Tanisra, the Buddhist teacher Tanisra, says that uh, sometimes dreams are um, dreams for the collective. Sometimes they're personal, and sometimes uh, they can be for the collective. So I think this might be a dream for the collective, so I'm going to share it with you. Don't worry, it's not going to go on and on and on about my dream. (laughs) It's pretty short. So I was traveling with a girlfriend, and... um, we were driving on a highway, and we stopped somewhere, and this uh, grizzly bear showed up. So for those of you who aren't from the United States, a grizzly bear is um, the biggest bear in the United States. And um, while usually not dangerous, they're the most potentially dangerous, you could say, of the, of the bears in this um, country. You'll be happy to hear that they don't live around here. <laughs> they live out west. Around here we have black bears. Black bears are basically harmless. Very rare that they would cause any trouble. They'll just run away if you if you meet one. But grizzly bears are known to be a little bit ornery. And so um, when my friend sees the bear, she starts running away. And that's like the worst thing you can do with a bear. So the bear starts running after her, and I'm really afraid that the bear is going to, you know, maul her and kill her. And so then I, I can't see them, and then I go close and I see them, and um, she's lying down, and the bear is petting her. And um, he's trying to heal her, and he's a bear that goes around healing people. <laughs> Maybe it's not too disguised (laughs) as a collective dream. (laughs) You know, we have these grizzlies in our lives that um, we're so afraid of, right? We try to run from them, and we're afraid that they'll, you know, maul us and kill us, that we can't bear them, we can't be with them. But what if these grizzlies are really just um, here to heal us? So we can consider that possibility. Even if you run from them, they'll find you. (laughs) Uh, And try to heal you. So before I continue on with Vipari Namadukkha, I just want to kind of make one caveat about this turning towards Dukkha. So one thing we talked about is if um, we get overwhelmed by some uh, 
in an afflictive mind state or some some um, unpleasant pain, uh, that it's good to 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 move the attention elsewhere to stabilize the attention. I think Jaya talked about this a little bit more this morning. There's other kinds of wounding that are kind of like deep patterns that come up a lot, maybe karmic knots, but whatever, deep emotional patterns. And um, sometimes we turn towards those patterns with this hope that if we keep going deep into them, that somehow we'll get rid of them. It's the secret hope. And so sometimes we keep going into these patterns and um, we don't exactly consider the possibility that we, we, might, um, we might not need to do that so much. So after all this turn towards dukkha, turns towards dukkha, there comes a time when it's like, you know, maybe I've done this enough. And, and we might um, choose not to go there, not out of um, aversion, but out of wisdom. I'll give you an example. So a number of years ago, I used to come by here some. I wasn't yet a teacher. And I would come by here some and, and um, come in the staff dining room which is where everything happens, right? It's like the nerve center of of IMS for the staff. (laughs) This is a nerve center for the rest of what's going on. But um, So I would come in the staff dining room, and I would see this this other woman uh, fairly frequently, and um, I just felt like I didn't like her. No real specific reason. Um, Everybody else liked her. Uh, she she was just starting to teach a little bit. She seemed to have like these great relationships with all the teachers. And it took me a while to realize that what was really going on was I was envious. So it was kind of interesting. First it was vague. It was just this kind of aversion. And, um, and then I started to realize that envy was what I was feeling. And envy isn't a mind state that most of us like to cop to a lot. <laughs> um, but I started to get interested in it. So uh, when I would come over and run into her and the envy would come up, I started to actually, like, what is envy? How does it feel? I started to be able to turn towards it and, and experience it and, um, and started to actually get to some of what was like underlying it, which was my own feelings of inadequacy or discontent. And... Um, so I got to know it quite well. And then one time, I was, I was in the staff drawing room, and she came in. And I saw my mind, and it was like um, it was, it was like I had a tape recorder, for those of you who remember them. Um, <laughs> it's like I had a tape recorder, and my finger was going towards play. And I knew the whole tape. I knew exactly how it went, right? And I was just like... No, I don't think we're going to do that. (laughs) It wasn't a version. I'd already explored it a lot. It was just kind of like, you know, I think we've done that one enough. And um, and I didn't. I didn't, you know, I didn't go there. And um, over time, I wound up uh, uh, becoming a friend of hers. (laughs) Um, But but the point of the story is that that after we've explored something a lot, there can become a time when we're like, just like, I don't need to do that again. 
But it's not aversion. <laughs> it's just like, eh, yeah. It actually doesn't interest us so much anymore. <laughs> you know how compelling even our wounded stories can be. It's like they're sticky, they're compelling. It was like it wasn't sticky anymore. So just hold out that possibility um, as another kind of part of our healing and our journey with, in this case, unpleasant mind state. So it's getting late. I better get to Viparinama Dukkha. So tonight we're going to further mess with our conventional uh, understanding about happiness by turning our attention to this second kind of dukkha, viparinama dukkha, the dukkha of change. And sometimes this uh, kind of dukkha is associated with our relationship with, with pleasantness. You could say we explored our relationship with unpleasantness last uh, week and this year, it's, uh, this week, this year. <laughs> This week it's our, our relationship with pleasantness. So we're um, looking at our conditioning that leads to suffering around pleasant sense experience and pleasant mind states and, and also, again, how we can um, move towards freedom. So we'll be continue looking at Vedana, with, which both Greg and Andrea talked about yesterday. Before continuing, I want to say that when I say pleasant sense experience, it can kind of perpetuate the idea that it is the sense experience itself that is pleasant. And um, as Andrea explained yesterday, um, that's not true, right? So when I say pleasant sense experience, what I actually mean is sense experience that lands on this being at this time in a way that feels pleasant, But since that takes a long time to say, um, I'll say pleasant sense experience. But I just wanted to to clarify that. Or unpleasant sense experience experience is um, a sense contact that lands on this being at this time in a way that feels unpleasant. So with this kind of dukkha, we're going to go deeper into um, the challenges of human existence. And we're going to look at the dukkha that's associated with what is pleasant. The dukkha due to this world of change. And that even what is pleasant contains a possibility of suffering because of impermanence, because of change. Basically because it'll end. Darn. Darn. It's a translation of dukkha as unsatisfactoriness, that things of this mundane world cannot ultimately satisfy us because they don't last. They can't solve our happiness um, quandary or dilemma or challenge or journey. They can't solve that. They're unreliable because they don't last. We can't depend on pleasantness to save us in this world of change. So this continues to go against our conventional idea of happiness. Get rid of the unpleasant, maximize the pleasant. 
But what we start to explore in our practice is that, that this paradigm, this way of looking at the world, this way of organizing our lives to try to get rid of the unpleasant and maximize, maximize the pleasant, that it, 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 that itself it is um, suffering. That it produces a kind of restlessness and contraction and edginess and dissatisfaction that is suffering. So we expend a lot of energy, though, trying to be happy this way. I'm sure you've noticed. We do it on retreat just like we do it in life. We're just so sure that if we just figure it out, that we will We'll, we'll, we'll nail it, that we'll find that way to be happy by just getting the pleasant circumstances to be exactly as we want and to last. We just haven't managed to figure it out yet, but, but we will. <laughs> we'll get it down. <laughs> I mean, when I say it, of course it sounds crazy, but, but that's like a lot of the conditioning in our minds. And we can start to notice that. My first uh, long retreat here that I mentioned a couple times, it was a three-month retreat. I actually wound up staying um, for five months. And somewhere around month four, I think it was, I started to try um, to figure out how I was going to be happy the rest of my life. That became, I was young, you know, and still um, kind of my life was still pretty unformed. I was 20, 24 and uh, I'd finished college and worked a while in Nicaragua, but, you know, I was pretty free spirit and uh, no obligations at that moment. And um, I was like, how am I going to be happy? And this question just plagued me. It, it came up um, over and over again. And my mind um, kept coming up with, like, scenarios, like, okay, I will get a little cabin in the mountains and I'll just meditate. I'll be like a hermit. And then I was like, I think I'd get lonely. That one's not going to work. And um, then I'd be like, well, I'll join a spiritual community and, um, you know, practice there. And then I was like, oh, the people would drive me nuts. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, maybe I'll have a kid. And then I'm like, oh, I don't want that responsibility. And, like, this went on for a month. Um, Just like, how am I going to be happy? How am I going to be happy? And uh, everything came up. It just kept coming up. It wasn't going to work. And I and I was I experienced a lot of fear during that month. I remember um, I was doing this Mahasi style where you know it all the time. And many mornings, my first note was fear. Wake up in fear. Go to bed in fear. I was just like I was afraid because it kept coming up empty. It kept coming up like it, I couldn't find the answer. And then. Um, I had this moment where I went into an interview with my teacher, and I said, she was so kind, she saw me every day, because I was pretty distraught. um, So I went into her and I said, it doesn't look like there's anything that's going to make me permanently happy. (laughs) And she said, yep. (laughs) I remember this clearly, she said, yep. (laughs) 
And then I said, so I guess the only thing to do is to look for happiness, like the only place that I can find it, and that's now. She's like, yep. (laughs) And the fear went away that afternoon. Just, and uh, a lot of peace came into my practice. And I think it was because I, I was actually starting to look for happiness where it could be found, not some kind of future conditions that I was going to get just right, but I started to look for happiness just in the moment. Like, what's going on in this moment? How can there be peace in this moment with things just as they are? I've practiced a lot in um, Burma at this wonderful monastery in in Sagain Hills, um, Chaswa Monastery. And at Chaswa, each person has their own little, they're called kutis, little hut. And um, one year I was comparing my kuti with my friend Patricia, and I was like, my kuti, you know, it's really great because it has this nice view, and um, and it's... uh, I can't remember what, what what are the other positives. Well, I remember it had a great view, <laughs> um, but it was really hot because it had a great view. It was out in the open. It was really hot, and it got a lot of um, smoke from the village and a lot of noise from the village. But there were other ways that it was really great. And then Patricia's like, "Well, my kuti, it um, is not hot. It's in the shade. It's back in the canyon in the shade. It's really cool. But um, I got lots of bugs." And uh, I don't get the noise from the village, and I don't get the smoke from the village. And I'm like, yeah, I don't get any bugs. But, you know, like, and the conclusion we came to was, there's not a perfect kuti. (laughs) (laughs) And I use that phrase sometimes, like when, you know, you think that that there's just like, you're going to be able to find it, right? There's going to be just right. It's just like, no, there's not a perfect kuti. So some of our results around this efforts to be happy by accumulating pleasant sense experience, there is some gratification. So we we get hooked. You know, it actually sometimes pleasant feels good. <laughs> and sometimes we can arrange our lives to be pleasant. And I'm not saying we shouldn't try to arrange our lives to be pleasant. But if that's our primary strategy for happiness, we're going to be disappointed. Shantideva, the famous, um, what was he, Buddhist person, (laughs) monk, I guess he was a monastic from many centuries ago, he said that um, this kind of dukkha, or the the pleasant, you know, relying on the pleasantness is like honey on a razor blade. (laughs) It cuts you. You think that it's going to taste sweet, and then it gets you. So what we're starting to see is that the way out of dukkha is to accept the kind of world that we live in. To fully land in the kind of world that we live in, this universe, this world we're looking for happiness and some kind of enduring sense experience is going to leave us frustrated, restless, and suffering. 
Because we piridhamma dukkha is only dukkha when we're resisting the truth of change, when we're resisting that pleasant ends. When we can rest in that truth, like that moment in that interview, when we can rest in that truth, when we don't argue with reality, then there's peace, there's not a problem. So we're exploring dukkha and freedom from dukkha. Investigating anicca dukkha, we add this uh, deep exploration into how we relate to pleasantness, to pleasant sense experience. Pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, pleasant smells, thoughts, emotions. And what we see, right, with, um, without mindfulness is that we cling, we grasp. We add on that second arrow of suffering. We try to hold on. Our investigation, then, is that very trying to hold on, the grasping, the stress of trying to keep pleasantness or get or keep pleasantness. Like, that's what we're interested in. We get seduced by the pleasant experience, but we're actually interested in that relationship to pleasantness. And when does that become suffering? So we bring mindfulness to the whole process. Watching a beautiful sunset. How is it? Is there just enjoyment, just pleasant, just seeing? Or is there, how can I get just a little bit more enjoyment out of this? You know that feeling? Like it's a pleasant day and you're just like, how How can I just crack this a little bit more? That's, That's clinging. That's added stress. Can we enjoy the sunset like this? Or is this present? A fantasy. So we're sitting here, a fantasy comes along, we're like, wow, I could use a break. This, <laughs> this, this seems great. I think I'm just going to hang out here for a while. <laughs> and in conventional happiness, there'd be no reason for you not to do that. In conventional happiness, it's just like, go for it, enjoy yourself. Um, but what's happening? We're conditioning ourselves, right? We're conditioning ourselves to rely on pleasantness. And there's some kind of holding on to that pleasantness. What's that like? The wanting to keep it, the wanting to go back there. If we understand the Buddha's teachings uh, pointing to an unconditional kind of happiness, then every time that we emerge from a fantasy, let it go, reconnect with here and now, we're developing, you could say, new understandings for the heart, new understandings for the mind, new possibilities. Maybe I don't have to be dependent on pleasantness to be happy. We're strengthening the free heart and mind, freed from our addiction to pleasantness.
already see I have about two talks worth of stuff. Um, Okay, I'm going to read this sutra. Um, I'm going to set the stage. So the Buddha um, talked about conventional reality, and there are a couple of major ways that he liked to break it down. So he liked to break down how the world was or is. And uh, last night, Andrea talked about a couple of them. Um, I mean, I talked basically about the five aggregates. So we can break down this reality into um, form, Vedana, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So another way he often broke down reality is the six senses. So six, and sometimes he made it 18 by the six sense um, doors, the six sense consciousness, and the six sense objects. But we're just going to say six sense experiences to kind of shorten it. Um, So in this sutra, he talks about life in the sixth sense basis. So the mind being the sixth one. So I'm going to read it and then I'll come go back through it. So just don't worry if you don't get it all the first time through. And this is from the Samyutta Nikaya. It's actually a collection of short sutras and I kind of put them together. At Sawati, Bhikkhus, Before my enlightenment, while I was still a bodhisattva, not yet fully enlightened, it occurred to me, what is the gratification, what is the danger, what is the escape in the case of the I? What is the gratification, what is the danger, what is the escape in the case of the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind? Actually, in the sutra, it's written out for each, along for each one of those. Then bhikkhus, it occurred to me, the pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on the eye, this is the gratification of the eye. That the eye is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change, this is the danger in the eye. The removal and abandonment of desire and lust for the eye, this is the escape from the eye. And then it goes on for each one of the sense bases. The pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. This is a gratification in the six sense bases. That the six sense bases are impermanent, suffering, and subject to change. That is the danger in the sense bases. The removal and abandonment of desire and lust for the sense bases. This is the escape from the sense bases. So long bhikkhus, as I did not really know as they really are, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of the six sense bases, I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. But when I directly knew all this as it really is, then I claimed to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. The gratification, the danger, and the escape. So that's what we'll talk about. The pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on the eye, this is the gratification of the eye. 
of all the sense bases are these sense experiences, right? So basically saying that sense experience, sense contact, can be pleasurable and can, that can produce joy and gratification. Duh! I mean, you know that, right? <laughs> they bring some sense of gratification because of the pleasantness and the joy. This is a kind of happiness we all experience. And I would say that meditation actually increases our capacity to experience pleasantness at the sense bases. I was walking through the woods the other day, and this one tree, every day I would walk by, and this one maple tree stayed really yellow even after all these other leaves had fallen. And then I walked through one day, and like there were a bunch of yellow leaves on the... Um, on the ground, and they were so bright, and it was just like, wow. It was so pleasant and so enjoyable to see just the bright colors. This has happened, I'm sure, for many of you, that the senses become more refined and and, um, more sensitive, brighter. In many moments of our day, we can be present for this kind of happiness if we're, if we're actually here. So mindfulness helps us to be actually here. And in meditation, we bring our, our attention back over and over to the, the sense experiences, right? Seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, body sensation. It can actually be really useful if our practice has a lot of dukkha to, to, to purposely notice pleasant sense experience. It can help relax the mind and the body. The commentaries especially recommend it for aversion or for, for scatteredness. There's a whole part in the commentaries about what kind of meditation environment different types of people should have. And somebody who's suffering from a lot of aversion, they should have silk sheets, very tasty food, a path with lots of flowers on it, good-looking servants. Um, it, goes, it goes on and on about like how nice it should be. <laughs> And the idea is, is, is to help us, you know, the aversive types to kind of soften a little bit. I'm an aversive type, so I know a lot, I know a lot about it. Um, thank God, I wouldn't want to be a great type. You should hear what pun kind of plays, see? <laughs> <laughs> Those who are more the wanting types, they're like, oh, there should be lots of bugs and... The food should be really plain and unappealing and the coarse sheets and uh, a bug, a dirty path full of, uh, you know, lizards and like. <laughs> That's to help encourage renunciation. <laughs> the scattered types also get the really nice, nice deal. But it does, it kind of soothes us. Pleasant sense experience can can soothe the nervous system and soften us. So sometimes when um, there's a lot of dukkha, I'll recommend that uh, students find, you know, 
something pleasant, a warm cup of tea, a walk in the woods. When there's flowers, flowers. <laughs> That's, yeah. There's so much, so many possibilities. So the Buddha did recognize it, that, that things and experience can bring some level of happiness. He called it gratification. So he's not telling us to reject sense pleasantness. He's not saying um, to reject that, but he is saying that uh, there. You know, we're getting to the danger. <laughs> he's saying that there is um, some challenge here. He says, "Because I set out seeking the gratification in the eye, the ear, the six sense bases." Whatever gratification there is in the sixth sense basis that I have discovered. I have seen clearly with wisdom how far the gratification in the sixth sense basis extend. Hmm. So it looks like there's a limit to that gratification. I've seen how far it extends. And he goes on. Bhikkhus, if there were no gratification in the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, beings would not become enamored with them. But because there is gratification, beings become enamored with them. Hmm. I like that word in the translation that I I saw, the word enamored. (laughs) It's like we fall in love with sense pleasures. What is it like to be in love, to be enamored, right? When we're in love and we're infatuated, we're actually quite blind. We see the good and we completely ignore the faults, right? When you're enamored with somebody, when you're in love with them, we don't even want to hear about the faults. We're not actually completely in touch with reality when we're enamored or in love in that kind of way. And we don't want to be in touch with reality Ever tried to tell someone in love that the person that they love has limitations? <laughs> I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> That's what happens with sense pleasures. We don't really want to hear that there might be some limitations with sense pleasures, right? Some of you probably wish that I would quit talking. <laughs> <laughs> she's going to burst my bubble. (laughs) Maybe you don't want to hear the rest of the discourse. (laughs) Oh, well, we're too far in now. (laughs) I think that another way that we can think about this investigation with the Sixth Sense bases and and all is about um, developing a mature love for the world coming out of infatuation into a real, durable, and mature love. A mature love must see the beauty and also the limitations of that which is loved. A mature love sees and accepts things as they are and is based in reality, not in projections and fantasies. It's a stronger and more enduring love. Perhaps we develop a stronger and more enduring love for the world. It becomes more mature. 
So the next part of the sutra. What is the danger of the six sense bases? That the eye is impermanent, suffering and subject to change. That is the danger in the eye, the ear, the nose, the mouth, the tongue. So one of the basic truths of life and the core teachings of the Buddha you've been hearing about is that conditions are always changing in this world. One time, um, somebody asked Suzuki Roshi, he said, Suzuki Roshi, I've been listening to your lectures for years. A student said during the question and answer time following a lecture, but I don't understand. Could you just please put it in a nutshell? Could you just reduce Buddhism to one phrase? Everybody laughed. Suzuki laughed. Everything changes, he said. Then he asked for another question. I taught at a college for a number of years, um, one of the colleges nearby here, Mount Holyoke College, and um, one time I was talking about change with the students, talking about the Buddhist teachings on change. I said, well, you know, it's pretty obvious that everything changes. Like, so what? Why do we you know, keep talking about that? And one of the students said, that pretty much is the way things are, and if you have issues with this, you need to deal with them. <laughs> I liked that a lot. (laughs) If you have issues with change, you need to deal with them. (laughs) Because that's pretty much the way it is. That's, That's a lot what we're doing here is dealing with our issues with change. So we don't mind too much when the unpleasantness changes and goes away, right? That's why this um, dukkha, uh, viparinama dukkha, uh, dukkha of changes, we're focusing more on the pleasantness because that's, that's what we mind, right? When the pleasantness goes away, when it doesn't stay. And we have to have a lot of motivation for this um, kind. We need a lot of dhamma virya, dhamma energy, for this kind of investigation because the temptation when it's pleasant is to get lost in it, is to just kind of enjoy it but enjoy it without mindfulness. And, and, um, and that getting lost in it uh, tends to have this delusion that it's going to last forever. Have you noticed that? It's, it's, you might not because delusion's so slippery. It doesn't. It likes to operate behind the scenes. <laughs> it doesn't like to announce itself. <laughs> but if you ch- if you check it out when we're kind of lost in something really pleasant, there's like, oh, maybe maybe this is gonna last forever. Of course, when I say it, we're like, no, it's not. But but it's the delusion is. Oh, that's the getting. And so we like to kind of get lost, right, in that. And then when it ends, what happens? Uh, we suffer. So we start to bring mindfulness to this whole process of being with unpleasantness, seeing what it can really offer, what it can't, and learning how to make peace with that. I did this exploration one time um, when I was in Burma. So I really, um, really like Burmese sweet tea. 
La Paye Cho. And um, so in the morning, they have this sweet tea, and, and it's made like with sweetened condensed milk and all frothy and like really good. I have to limit how many cups I have. <laughs> so um, this particular time before I went to Burma, I started thinking about Le Pecho months in advance. <laughs> and um, <laughs> looked, I tried to make it at home. It did not work. Um, so really looking forward to it. And it's the kind of thing, maybe you all have one of these. It's the kind of thing that you're on retreat. I was on, when I was on retreat, it was really hard. It was like, oh, there's always Le Pecho tomorrow morning. You know, it's like it could get me through an afternoon, like the promise of Le Pecho. So I get there the first day, and, and there's so much Dhamma energy at this um, monastery. It's like people have been practicing there for 800 years, and um, that I just drop right in, you know, right into a meditative space. So I go to breakfast the first morning, excited about my lepecho, and I'm drinking my tea mindfully, and um, the pleasantness kept ending. Like it was pleasant ending, pleasant ending, pleasant ending. And I was so disappointed. I cried all the way through breakfast. <laughs> like I didn't sob, right? But, but I had tears like running down my cheeks. It was like, oh, it's ending, ending, ending. And um, so disappointed, right? So every morning... I just got so curious. Right? Every morning I, was, I would drink my little pecho and just mindfully watch what was happening. And um, I remember like getting angry at the tea. It was like, you're not delivering. You're supposed to really be doing it. You're not doing it. And I went through a lot with the tea, right? And then um, one morning I'm drinking, it was like pleasant ending peace. Pleasant ending peace. And like the peace became like the most noticeable thing of that whole process. I had finally accepted the limits of what that pleasantness could offer me, and I hadn't, I was, there was no more resistance. What I mean by we investigate food, great place to investigate pleasantness in our relationship to it. So as the story points out, there can even be this kind of um, disappointment in this process. It takes a strong yearning for the truth to go through this. One yogi today, he told me I could share this, one yogi today was talking about how sitting in the hall and the mind would go, oh, when I go home, I get to do this. I'd be like, ah, you know, ah, and then it'd be like, empty. It'll be pleasant for a little while and it'll end. Be like, oh, when I can go home, I can do this. When I go home, I get to do this, empty, empty. And, and then he said that there was so much despair. I'm thinking there was a lot of disappointment. And um, that disappointment or that kind of despair is considered a wholesome mind state because we're actually seeing the limitations of what we can expect from sense pleasures, from sense experiences. 
So we get disappointed mindfully. It's the mindful disappointment that teaches us to let go. That's what happened with the tea. It was like that disappointment was teaching me to let go. Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche says, Disappointment is a good sign of basic intelligence. (laughs) It cannot be compared to anything else. It's so sharp, precise, obvious, and direct. Mm -hmm. Charlotte Joko Beck says, Practice has to be a process of endless disappointment. We have to see that everything we demand and even get eventually disappoints us. This discovery is our teacher. Now you're probably really wishing I'd be quiet. (laughs) But this isn't bad news. (laughs) It sounds like bad news, but it teaches us to let go. It teaches us peace. It unbinds the heart and the mind. It unbinds us from our addiction to sense pleasure. And from that restless, endless search for what's going to do it. And it also really kind of tenderizes the heart, softens the heart, opens the heart of compassion. Wes Nisker, a rather funny West Coast uh, teacher, says, To witness witness myself in the story of evolution, this is all about evolutionary conditioning, I also feel a surge of compassion for all the struggles of all life. Let's face it, the basic rules on this planet are a bitch. (laughs) Yeah, I sometimes think that way. I'd be thinking like, I wouldn't have planned it this way. (laughs) But this is the way it is. So the heart gets um, softened and tenderized by these encounters with Anicca Dukkha. So the Buddha goes on to tell us how to resolve the problem, the escape. The removal and abandonment of desire and craving for the I, this is the escape from the I. The removal and the abandonment of desire and craving for the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. Escape. That's the word. Like we're caught and then we're free. We're in a confined place and we leave it. Craving's been described as shackles in the heart. Craving binds the heart, clenches it like a fist. We're imprisoned. And the way out is by abandoning the desire. So abandon does not mean get rid of. I looked up abandon this afternoon. It means, one meaning, condense something to a specified fate by ceasing to take an interest in it. To give up completely, to cease to look after, so to leave aside, 
So it doesn't mean we hate craving or make it bad or reject it. We just learn how to leave it aside. Or I like to say we learn how to open that fist. As long as I did not know directly as they are the gratification, the danger, then the escape of the sixth sense bases, I did not claim to have awakened. But when I knew directly all this as it really is, then I claimed to have awakened. To know directly means to experience for ourselves. Pay attention to how we respond to our experiences through these sense doors. Use mindfulness. What is our experience of the senses? How do they change? Do we, if it's pleasant, do we find ourselves clinging, holding on? If so, what is that like? What happens when we bring mindfulness to the clinging and holding on? So we move our attention from the seduction of the pleasant object, the pleasantness, to the mind that either holds on or the mind that lets go. There's this great um, video that a friend of mine named Temple Smith, a teacher out west, uh, put on um, Facebook, I think it was. So it's this little girl, she's like four years old, and um, her mom's talking to her off camera. And her mom says to her, we can't have um, waffles for dinner. And the little girl's like, why? Why can't we have, I want waffles for dinner. Why can't we have waffles for dinner? And her mom's like, We had waffles for dinner last night. We had waffles for breakfast. We're not having waffles for dinner. She's like, I want waffles. And then she's like, I can't stop thinking about waffles. Why can't I stop thinking about waffles? (laughs) And Temple writes under it, I think she's about to have a breakthrough around craving. this because like sometimes we have like four-year-old waffle mind right like why can I stop thinking about blank um it's the nature of craving (laughs) craving is obsessive right the thinking is obsessive it won't let you go One time I did this exploration around, um, you might notice by now that when, when, when um, us teachers talk about our practice, one of the qualities you probably hear a lot is curiosity. It's so helpful. We're like, we're like so interested in like, how does this heart, how does this mind work? <laughs> like, how do I get ensnared? How do I get free? We really want to understand through our own experience. So... I used to um, teach sometimes out west at um, Cloud Mountain, and um, I'd have to go on a day early because it's, it's all the way across the country, time change and all. And so we had this um, uh, ritual where, um, with the staff, we'd make, um, a, should I tell you, oof. Um, <laughs> or as they say in Minnesota, oof, um, we make Giardelli brownies, like Giardelli chocolate brownies, like they're really, they're really good. <laughs> I 
take that chocolate chunks and like really good. And um, and so one day I remember I was taking a brownie back to my cabin and I was like, I'm going to eat this sometime later, right? And I'm carrying the brownie and like um, I get back there and I, I eat the brownie. Like, you know, so good. And so I was like, hmm, how did that happen? <laughs> so the next day I got a brownie. I'm like, I am going to do this entirely with mindfulness and see what happens. So I'm carrying this brownie back and I watch the craving. Like it will go, you know, like amping up and then be like, I was curious like what the craving was saying. And the craving was like, you're going to die if you don't eat that brownie. <laughs> it says that sometimes, right? So it's like, you're going to die if you don't eat that brownie. You've got to eat that brownie, you know. And, um, and it would peak, and it would go, and then it would go down for a while. And then it would start going up again. you got to eat that brownie. Um, but I just kind of went through the peaks, right? And it just stayed with it, stayed with it. I didn't eat the brownie. And I felt really good about that. I was like, I am not going to be controlled by a brownie. (laughs) I mean, like, that was part of it. It was like, no. (laughs) But the desire was like, this brownie will do it for you. Like, that's what craving's like. Or like I said, sometimes the story is like, this will never end. The brownie sense pleasure ends. It's not worth it. You guys don't think about it. So we start to actually see that we can live through it. We often tend to avoid the wanting because it's so unpleasant, right? And we get caught in what we want. But we start to see that we can actually survive wanting. We can survive craving. We can go through it. It's not going to kill us. We can go through it and um, we can be mindful. It's kind of empowering, actually. We start to be less bossed around by craving and aversion. We talked about that more or less. Oh, dear. I knew that was going to happen. Okay. Can we go five minutes over? Five minutes, I promise, won't be too much. And then sometimes it's so much more subtle, right? Like today I was walking in the woods and thinking about this. I love to, I work on a talk, then I walk in the woods, I come back and work a little bit. So I was noticing it was a beautiful day. Um, sunshine coming through the trees and the kind of the cool breeze on the, on the cheek and um, pleasant woodsy smell, really nice. And... Um, I was thinking, you know how we talk about multiple hindrance attack? I was having a multiple pleasure attack, right? (laughs) Very nice. And then I was kind of exploring, like, is there grasping here? Like, And I started to notice that there's a way that there's a subtle leaning into the experience. It's subtle. But it's almost like I have to go out and get the experience is what it feels like. So I was playing around with what's it like to kind of lean back and receive the experience. And I noticed that doing that, there was no craving. There was no wanting, no grasping. It's like grasping has this up and forward energy, and you can play with the kind of energetics of down and back and receiving life. We don't have to go out and get it. It will meet us. (laughs) 
they will come to us. <laughs> That's just another kind of way you can play with that energy and, and the transformation of it. And then we notice when clinging's not present too, right? So I noticed I had this thought, oh, the time's going to change soon. And this was a place that... Um, that the sun goes down early, so and it's hard for me to get there too early, too early in the afternoon. So I was like, "Oh, um, that you know, the the time's going to change, and then the sun won't be there." And I noticed like, like a kind of dulling of the mind, and then letting you know, there was some grasping, you know, wanting, it, and then let that go, and then the mind was bright and relaxed. What's it like to have a mind that's free of clinging? Jaya was talking about that this morning, citta nupasana, the third foundation of mindfulness. Know a mind with clinging, know a mind that's free of clinging. How does that feel? We get to explore that. All right. We're going to let most of the rest of this go. Except I want to read a poem to end. So there is a, um, a book called T- the Terigata, which is the verses of the elder nuns. Some of you, I think, the first, uh, the three-monthers heard Carol talk about this quite a bit, I think. They're great stories of the early nuns and um, their enlightenment poems. The tradition was to write a poem when you were enlightened. Um, most of their stories are lots of suffering, just lots of trauma, death of husband, children, abusive husbands, like just really um, challenging situations. So this is one of the poems. It's called Another Sama. Maybe somebody read it the first six weeks. Um, I don't know Sama's story, but I'm assuming there's a lot of trauma in it because they're pretty much all like that. After 25 years on the path, I'd experienced almost everything except peace. When I was young, my mother told me I would only find true happiness in marriage. Remembering her words all those years later, something in me began to tremble. I gave myself to the trembling, and it showed me all the pain this little heart had ever known. And how countless lives of searching had brought me at last to the present moment, which I happily married. Can you imagine... We've been living together ever since without a single argument. (laughs) Sit for a minute. the present moment, which I happily married. We've been living together ever since without a single argument.
Thank you for your kind attention and allowing me to go five minutes over. Well, you didn't really have any say, did you? (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.